Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Thank you for the reading. My apologies for the uh, <laughs> a little mix-up right there, but... Uh, don't be too hard on me. I wrote like four homilies this week, so it uh, gets a little tough. So this morning, we have a really great selection of texts. Oh, my goodness. Um, and so when I heard them, I knew exactly which one. I, well, I, I, I was excited because I really liked this, the, the, sermon, uh, the, 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 the account from the book of Numbers. And nobody really preaches out of Numbers. And this, uh, the, the reading from Numbers gave me an opportunity to do something I don't get to do all the time, which is get like super Bible nerd on y'all. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to what we have to talk about today. Uh, so in the numbers reading, we have this really interesting story about the children of Israel coming uh, from the Red Sea and uh, out by way of the Red Sea. They're going around the land of Edom. And the reason why they're going around the land of Edom was because they were barred entry. And they're said to the Edomites, hey, can we just like travel through we promise we're not going to cause any trouble. We're not going to get ornery. We're not going to take anything. We're not going to fight. We're not going to try. We just want to pass through. And Edomites said, we'll think about it. No. So the children of Israel are like, ah, fine. So they walk around because they can't, uh, they can't go through. Yeah. <laughs> I read, Jeanette posted an article the other day. If it says, if the children aren't crying, your church is dying. But... Uh, so keep uh, bringing your kids. <laughs> anyway, so what happens is the people then, they, they, start, they start to complain. So what do we notice right away in this text? Well, the, the people are getting really, really, really impatient. They get so impatient. They do something so dumb, so stupid. You would, have, you would think that by now they would say, on our list of things not to do, Number one, and that number one thing that they do is they become impatient and they spoke against God and against Moses. Now what they speak up against is they say, you brought us out of Egypt to die. You have brought us up to die. Which goes against everything what God was trying to do. And I just thought of this right now is the Exodus story right? The, the children of Israel being delivered from bondage and slavery, being led into the promised land, is one of the chief pictures that the New Testament uh, authors and the, the post-apostolic church fathers, it's one of the main images and pictures that's used to develop the idea of what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to, to be delivered and redeemed? It's like the archetype of the story of salvation. And so God's act of salvation they're calling that act of salvation. God is actually not trying to save them. He's trying to kill them because they don't have it easy, even though they didn't have it easy in Egypt. They say there's no food, no water, and then they say something, we loathe this worthless food. What was this worthless food? I'm going to put that in air quotes because it wasn't worthless food, but what was a worthless food that they were complaining about? The manna. 
Now, did the bakeries of the children of Israel follow them, and then they had like a team of Levitical bakers baking manna, and then in the morning they would distribute it to everybody? No. The manna, they would wake up in the morning, they'd go outside, and they're like, oh, there's bread on the ground. This is pretty great. And then they would pick it up, put it in the baskets, and take it home, and they would do this every morning except on the Sabbath. Where did this manna come from? Well, it came from God. This was God's provision for them in the middle of the wilderness. God provides food for them to eat. He gives them bread from heaven. God's provision that was meant to preserve their life, they call it worthless. Spurning God's gracious provision for their health and life. And think about it like this, provision even in the midst of judgment, because this is the point, brothers and sisters, in the story where the children of Israel, they get to the borders of the promised land, and then what happens? They send out the spies, two of the spies say, we can take it, God is with us, and the other ten say, uh-uh, we were like giants in their sight, they're going to kill us. So it starts this whole thing, and ultimately God says, you know what, fine, you don't want to go into the promised land? None of you are getting in except these two guys over here that said we could, and your kids are going to go. All of you, you're not going to make it. Your kids will, but you're not. So turn around, go back into the wilderness, and you're going to wander there for about 40 years until your kids are old enough, and then I'll bring them back. So this was God's judgment against them. But notice, as they're walking through the wilderness, in the middle of judgment, does God abandon them? No. He graciously provides for them. He provides food for them. And they're spurning this. They're spurning this. So what happens, it says, the Lord sends fiery serpents among them. At first glance, it seems straightforward. Snakes are slithering around, biting people. But the text suggests a couple of other things at play here. So to get, can I get a little Bible nerdy with you, a little language nerdy with you today? Thank you. Well, even if you said no, I was going to do it anyway. In Hebrew, right, this word for fiery serpents is haserafim hanachashim. All right, so in numbers here, it gets translated as venomous or fiery serpents. You could also translate it as the serpents, the seraphim. So you would think, well, what's that? In the book of Isaiah, that word haserafim gets translated into English as seraphim. And so then you ask yourself, well, what are seraphim? Well, in the Bible, the seraphim are these angelic beings that surround the throne of God that say, holy, 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 are you God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. They're these angelic beings that fly around the throne of God proclaiming the glory and the majesty and beauty of God. So some people have said, okay, we have a couple of options here. If in the book of Isaiah and other places, they're like these divine angel beings that surround the throne of God, do we have like a picture of like divine angel beings, God sending them down and, and smiting the children of Israel? So we have a couple options. The first option is regular snakes, like right? speaking of the poisonous effects of snake bite, you know, fiery. So that word seraph, where seraphim comes from, it could mean burning ones, so it could be a reference to the bite. Maybe the snakes are on fire. That would be crazy, right? Imagine you were hiking, you know, up the Blue Mountains and all of a sudden you saw a snake on fire and it was running at you. I'd probably scream and run the other way or divine serpent-like divine beings. Because in Isaiah 14, they're described as flying serpents. And in Isaiah 6, they're wind creatures, right, associated with the fire of holiness. So are the children of Israel being harmed by these angelic beings? 
I think no. I think that these are venomous snakes, not angelic divine beings. Because in verse 8 here in Numbers, it says, The Lord said to Moses, make to you a seraph. And in verse 9, it says, Moses made a nakash, which is the, another Hebrew word for serpent or snake. So I think what's going on here is uh, it's synonymous, right? The, the, these, this word here is, is meant to evoke natural, physical snakes. But this is one of the great things about Scripture is even with languages, we can kind of, we can take it and we can think about it and we can throw out things to one another and, and interact with the text. And that's why we have it, right? That's why Scripture challenges us to, to, dig, to dig deeper. But uh, Bible nerd moments done. Now we get back into regular sermon, <laughs> sermon mode. Right? So these are regular venomous snakes, not angelic divine beings, I think. They seem to be used synonymously here. So there's a, a Christological lesson I think we can we learn from this, like I said to the kids. In John 3, uh, 3.14 to 17, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think a lot of Christians get that part wrong. A lot of Christians think that God sent his son into the world so we as Christians can condemn the world. And then we wonder why people don't listen to us. I don't know, that was, that was for free. But it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ coming into the world is an act of love of God. So in, in, in this passage from John here, Jesus identifying himself, the serpent in the wilderness, right, being a picture of who he is and, and what his mission is, what he's been called to do, his, his death being lifted up on the cross as something that's healing, something that we gaze and place our trust and our faith in that, that saves us and that heals us. St. John Chrysostom, in his homilies in the Gospel of John, he says this, If the Jews, by looking to the brazen image of a serpent, escape to death, much rather will they who believe on the crucified with good reason enjoy a far greater benefit. For this takes place not through the weakness of the crucified, or because the Jews are stronger than he, but because God loved the world. Therefore is his living temple fastened to the cross. So he says here that, the Jews looking at this brazen serpent, they escaped death. But then he says, our escape is greater. He says that Christ, the crucified one, destroys death itself on the cross. He continues, seest thou the cause of the crucifixion and the salvation which is by it? See the relationship of the type to the reality? There they escaped death. But the temporal, here believers, the eternal. There the hanging serpent healed the bites of serpents. But here the crucified Jesus cured the wounds inflicted by the spiritual dragon. There he who looked with his bodily eyes was healed. Here he who beholds with the eyes of his understanding put off all his sins. There that which hung was brass fashioned into the likeness of a serpent. Here it was the Lord's body built by the spirit. There a serpent bit and a serpent healed. Here death destroyed and a death saved. But the snake which destroyed had venom. That which saves was free from venom. And so again it was here, for the death which slew us had sin with it, as the serpent had venom. But the Lord's death was free from all sin, as the brazen serpent from venom. For saith Peter, he did no sin, neither was guilt found in his mouth. So St. John Chrysostom here, he's relating the type 
the bronze serpent to the reality. He does a little bit of really inventive comparison here, which is fascinating. He says the Jews, the, the Jews looking on the, the serpent, their escape from death is temporal, but our escape from death, brothers and sisters, as Christians, is eternal. Is eternal. The serpent bites were healed by looking at the serpent, and he says Jesus cures us of the wound given us by the spiritual dragon. Right? So just as their bodies were poisoned by the venom, and looking upon this are healed, so too our spiritual bodies, our spiritual beings are, that were wounded by sin, right, by the sin of our parents, our first parents, that sin, that wound that we carry is healed by gazing upon Christ on the cross and looking to him for our healing. And then he says, the serpent was made of brass and copper but then he says, Jesus' body was, I'm going to put air quotes here, built by the Spirit, right? So we have this acknowledgement of both the, the, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the serpent had venom which kills, but Jesus, who is free from all sin, gives life. He gives life. And then St. Paul, from the, the reading that we had from Ephesians, you know, he talks about how he basically says, you were dead, but Christ has what? Has made you alive. Then he says, by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. God's salvation for us. God's act of salvation through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death and crucifixion and resurrection is an act of love that draws from us the wound of sin. A couple of things that we can also look at, I think, here in this text is one of the things we notice about the children of Israel is they repeat their patterns of sin. Even when we know better, we continue to repeat those patterns. And sometimes even we repeat those patterns after God has shown us patience and goodness. Has any, have any of you ever, you don't have to raise your hand and identify yourself, but you can think this in your mind, right? Have any of you struggled with any, anything? Maybe a behavioral pattern, maybe a secret sin, maybe an addiction, something that you say, you know, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> I'm never going to yell at, at anybody ever again. And then something happens, and 10 seconds later, you're yelling at your, your spouse or your kid or your dog or, or something like that. I'm never going to yell at my beloved Fluffy again, and then Fluffy poops on the ground. Fluffy, you're the worst dog ever. I hate you. Right? That's a silly example, right? But we do that. We get caught, and we just keep going back to these patterns of sin over and over and over again. Sin locks us into patterns. And just as the serpent on the, on the pole looking at that gave them temporal healing, the only thing that can help us break free from those things is the power of Christ. As we gaze upon him, as we look upon him, as we place our hope and our trust in him, the divine life that he gives us, allowing that to, come, to, 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 to live through us and to flow through us. And then the complaint of the manna in the Numbers text, Jesus calls himself the manna in John 6. He says to them explicitly, I am the bread from heaven that your forefathers ate in the wilderness. He identifies himself as that bread from heaven. Jesus is 
the bread of life. He, and St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 30, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why some of you are weak and ill. Jesus is that bread from heaven, that true sustaining bread that gives us, gives us life. And as we come to him, we come to him aware of our sin, aware of our shortcomings, but trusting in his goodness, trusting in his healing, knowing that he loves us. And then like what we have in the Numbers story, there will be people who refuse Christ and his salvation. There were people in the Numbers story who most likely died of their wounds. And scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. And these wounds in the story, the being bitten in the story is representative of sin and death. Some people will die of their wounds. They will refuse Christ and his gift of salvation. And finally, brothers and sisters, the cross is lifted high for all to see. Shows God's salvation is offered to the world. Salvation, the gift of God, eternal life, liberation from death and the fear of death. I think, I think it's the book of Hebrews that says, that the fear of death is actually what kind of holds sway over us. But in Christ, we don't have to fear that anymore. Even if we do die, we know, we know that we will live on forever with him in, in, in his presence. And the cross, brothers and sisters, think of this specifically as we're making our way through Lent, as we're getting closer and closer to Holy Week, as we get to Palm Sunday, as we get to, to Good Friday, as we, we read the stories and we place ourselves in the feet of, of, of the people of that era, as we read the stories, as we interact with those stories, we follow Christ to the cross, to his passion, and we look upon him and we gaze upon him. When we get a little bit closer to the time, we're going to have a nice big cross right there. And as we worship, gaze upon it, Look upon it and trust that the one who died upon it did it for you. He did it for me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That verse loses meaning, I think, for us sometimes because we see it at football games. Somebody's got John 3.16 holding up the sign, and I get it. That's like become the standard verse if you want to tell someone about Jesus. John 3.16 and 17, we hold it up, and it's so familiar, we lose its power. It's been on so many t-shirts and coffee cups and placards. It's all over the place. Bumper stickers. We forget what it's actually saying, what it's tied in with. It's tied in with this story of Jesus being lifted up just like the serpent was. That in spite of people's sin, in spite of how they've been wounded by sin, and affected by death, Jesus comes to bring salvation, being made right with God, and to bring us eternal life through him, where we can be united with God and live in communion and in ever-deepening union with God forever. I think it was one of the, the later church fathers, St. Gregory Palamas, who said that uh, eternal life, or our life in heaven, we can't, we can't wrap our minds around it, but it's basically when we are united with God, somehow, whatever that experience is, 
it gets deeper and better and deeper and better throughout all eternity. And as we place our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation, I want to leave that with you, brothers and sisters, this week to think about that, to think about what the cross is, what the cross symbolizes, that the one who gave himself for us did so not to appease I want to be careful here. Not because God was angry with us, but because God loved us. Because God loved us. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Mike Landsman. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ. You know, we have deep roots here in the local community, and our history is fascinating in that we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're interested in worship that is traditionally grounded and scripturally faithful, come visit us. We may just be the church for you. You can find us online, zionstoneucc.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, zionstoneucc. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at malandsman at gmail.com. Again, God bless you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to have you visit our church. 